seventh episode of the Waterlog Podcast. We're your hosts, Howard Marlowe and Dan Janolfi. Thanks for tuning in. If you're not subscribed to our email updates on federal policy, all you have to do is go to waterlog.net. So I want to take a minute or two for those of you those of you new to the show to reintroduce who we are. We're a DC-based consulting firm that is focused on federal policy and coastal resilience. And this often involves the Corps and other federal agencies, but the Corps is the big kahuna when it comes to coastal infrastructure and beach nourishment. Here in DC, we run two firms that parallel each other. The first, Warwick Group Consultants, is focused on federal affairs. We've been in business since 1984. Under this heading, we lobby Congress for better water resource policies and more funding. And we also help solve problems of our clients, any problems that they have with the core or other executive branch agencies. Just take any beach along the east, west, or gulf coast, and there's a good chance we've represented them here in Washington for getting project authorizations or funding. Since authorization and funding is just the initial start, we help our clients navigate the complicated world of the core with this not always transparent world of internal policies and regulations. And the other is coastal strategies. And this firm is focused entirely on implementation of coastal resilience. The biggest challenge for local governments, businesses, and nonprofits is having the knowledge to make uh, to plan and, and make form and informed decisions, and then having access to capital to fund the projects that are proposed. And this is not an easy task for any local government because it really hasn't been done before. So the model that we have allows our clients to become engaged with an informed community and allow them to make smart decisions. And then once we've led them through engineering and design, we help them finance their projects in a variety of ways, everything from green bonds to uh, standard debt financing and revenue capture. And every community is different, and therefore so is the solution. I think our listeners would like to know probably that we have websites for both firms, <laughs> www.warwickconsultants.net and coastalstrategies.net is the other one. So that's a little bit on who we are. All right, let's get started. All right. So it's appropriation season. And on today's episode, we'll talk about where that process stands, along with updates on the National Flood Insurance Program, which is just, ex just recently extended to September 30th, with some important reforms in the works that you'll want to hear about. Uh, in addition, we have a Supreme Court ruling uh, on property takings and a recent report that we're increasing funds to dredge waterways, but actually dredging less sand. The House has delivered its version of an appropriations bill for energy and water and the Interior Department's Bureau of Reclamation. Since 1996, we've been tracking what Congress calls shore protection funding, and that includes any funds that go towards Corps of Engineers coastal programs or projects. Right, and last year Congress added roughly $140 million to the coastal program compared to what the President had requested. And we'll, we'll see something like that this year. Uh, you can actually find our chart on our website, waterlog.net. I'll provide a link to that. Um, in the most recent waterlog update that we have. But before we get too excited about the House adding you know, roughly 100 million like it did last year, let's be reminded that a lot of the projects are be being taken care of through disaster supplementals. Without those disaster supplemental funded projects, we would expect to see a lot more funding in the general construction account, probably hundreds of millions more. And Dan, speaking of uh, supplementals, let's take an example. The 2018 
Disaster Supplemental provided over $178 million in construction funds for shore protection. But our nation's leadership chooses to be reactive to catastrophes rather than preventative. So we just print more money and we forget about it in this country. Well, here's some, here's some figures. The House passed version of the uh, fiscal year 20 bill includes $7.36 billion for the Corps of Engineers, which is an increase of $357 million from the fiscal year 19 enacted level, and $2.5 billion above the President's request. Now, for shore protection, uh, the House has added 100, about $107 million to the budget compared to the President's almost record low request uh, of 19, about $19.5 million for a total shore protection budget of $127 million. Now, we have, for investigations, $135 million, an increase of $10 million over the fiscal 19 level and, 15, and, uh, and $58 million above the President's request. Construction, $2.34 billion, an increase of $154 million above last year and about $1 billion above the President's request. Operations and, operations and maintenance, uh, just shy of $4 billion, an increase of $183.5 million over last year's enacted level, and $2 billion above the President's request. Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund, uh, projects will receive about $1.7 billion, which is, which is $147 million above the enacted level last year, and an increase of $732 million above the President's request. Um, it's actually $100 million above the target set by the Water Resources uh, Development Act of 2014, so that is some, some good news. Now, the bill makes full use of the estimated receipts for the Inland Waterways Trust Fund and provides for six new study starts and six new construction projects. Now, $7.5 million in construction funds is allocated for the Section 1122 pilot projects, which are going to make use of dredge material out of the dredge material pilot program. Now, seven and a half million on its own won't get very far because they're 10, 10 projects total. But those funds will be used to increase what's called the delta. It's, it's the increase in cost between the baseline operation and maintenance disposal procedure, which is dumping it in the open ocean, um, versus uh, the placement uh, on shore or somewhere else, uh, whether it's on shore or in a disposal project or in a uh, disposal area. So I've talked about the core a little bit. What other bills are coming to the House floor this week, Howard? This week, uh, the House is acting on the Commerce Department's funding. Now, NOAA is in that bill. It gets about a 10% boost over the President's request. And the National Ocean Service is getting more than double the amount the President requested. And that agency handles navigational data, coastal science, harmful algal bloom research, coastal zone management services, a lot more. That uh, bill before the House also provides funding for the National Marine Fisheries Service. NIMFS is one of the resource agencies that often are involved in Corps of Engineers coastal projects. Like other resource agencies at the federal level, its resource agencies, its resource offices rather, regional offices, appear to be applying the agency's regulatory requirements unevenly. And the House wants a report from NIMS that delves into these inconsistency. To me, that's like asking for a report from uh, the Fox on why so many chickens are dead in the hen house. And for those of you who believe that we are experiencing climate change, the bill provides $186.5 million for climate research. No, the president didn't put a goose egg in his budget for climate research. A lot of people are going to be surprised about that. But he did put just half of the amount of money that the 
House wants to provide. Last but not least in this summary is the National Weather Service, important to all of us uh, coastal communities, particularly coastal businesses, residents. Apparently, there are staffing shortages in this agency, something Dan and I are hearing from other federal agencies as well. No, it's not, it's not just the National Weather Service. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and given the whipping that federal employees have taken from the president and others, in the weeks-long weeks long shutdown that we had earlier this year, it could well be the public service is not as attractive as it has been for decades. Well, we've been hearing people coming in and out, people acting or in this capacity on detail for a couple of months. And then yeah, this is happening at core headquarters yeah. quite a bit. We're seeing folks that are being rotated in and out every few weeks um, because they can't fill the positions on a permanent basis. That's very disturbing. You have very good people. Uh, we need them. Let's put it that way. Serving an important mission. Oh, critical. Absolutely critical. If you find those of our clients who come in uh, and we have them visit on the Hill are finding that staff people are stretched so thin they're doing two or three different jobs. It just should not be. It's a function of both money and the issue that we're talking about here, which is a shortage. Well, it's, 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 you know, the regional integration teams, which is essentially a, you know, at core headquarters, they have an individual person who are managing essentially divisions. And yeah. now that people are cutting across divisions, people working both West Coast and East, East Coast. East Coast. Yeah, absolutely. It's a problem. So imagine you look at a baseball team or any other sports team and you're switching the coach every month or so. Well, we might like to do that here in the Washington <laughs> National. <laughs> That's true. But. All right, well, we're happy to see things moving on flood insurance. Uh, currently, the program is extended until September 30th, and flood insurance tend to be a bipartisan issue, so it's strange that it's taking so long for uh, reforms to be enacted. Uh, here's the feel-good part. The House has stopped wasting its time, sat down, got to work, and decided to extend the program for five years. We hope that the Senate can agree, but we got to wait for that. Well, the House is on the verge of doing much more than kick the flood insurance can down the, uh, the road. There's been a need to deal with problems in the flood insurance program, inadequacies in the program for a long time. So the Financial Services Committee on the House side has approved a bill, H.R. 3161, that makes some very significant changes. The measure is broken down into four sections of reforms, affordability, mapping, mitigation and claims. So among the changes, are, it raises the minimum loan amount for the mandatory purchase requirement from the low of 5,000 now to 25,000. It's a lot more realistic. It authorizes mon also monthly payments for policyholders. I like this one. I think yeah. that many people get paid in increments throughout the year and not in one lump sum. So for affordability, the ability to essentially finance flood insurance is going to do a great job of getting non-policyholders who don't have a lump sum of cash on hand every year to buy policies. It's a simple cash flow fix. Well, there's also a revolving loan fund for mitigation efforts. Now, this sounds like a simple fix, too. You know, take some of the unspent funds that we have and reinvest them in insured homeowners taking the initiative to make their own dwellings more resilient. Simple fix to me. Yeah, why not do it? Well, the House bill would do that, so that's the answer. Making improvements to flood mapping, $500 million over five years is also provided for in that bill. Yeah, that's important. If, and especially if you're looking at buying a house, 
Check first to see if it's in a flood zone. Incidentally, I checked on my own house, and, and yes, I'm in a flood zone. Are you really? Yeah. You're on a hill. Well, <laughs> I'm actually at the bottom, of, you know, sort of on the bottom of some river. Who uh, knows? That leads us right into the next point, uh, allowing for appeals for inaccurate maps. Not, not everyone is right the first time, and sometimes things just need to be checked. Nobody knows better than a homeowner, right? So if you're a policy owner and you're concerned that something is just not right, appeal it. I'm all for that. I may do that. Now, the bill also makes allowances for local variances in flood proofing and also provides a third party report on NFIP's financial status. And we're anxious to see this one, really. Remember the $16 billion in NFIP debt that was forgiven after Harvey and Irma? But the government, I hope I didn't remember that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's your money, you know, and my money too, you know. I'd like to have my debts forgiven. So uh, another good one is, is to allow policyholders who left uh, the flood insurance program for private insurers to return to the NFIP with no penalty. I don't think there should be any penalty at all for leaving and rejoining, regardless of whether a policy policyholder left. Uh, private insurers and NFIs getting policies, why should the NFIP be any different? I agree on that one. Right, let's, let's step away from dollars and cents issues for just a moment and talk about cemeteries and property rights. You think that cemeteries have anything to do with the coast? Because they're coastal cemeteries. But this one actually is not on the coast that created this particular story. Supreme Court last week decided on a five to four split that a local requirement that landowners don't have to use state courts to fight an alleged taking of their land by a local government, uh, that instead they can go to federal courts. Now, the taking occurred because of a local ordinance granting public access to a burial ground that's on farmland. So there goes the cemetery right there on farm, farmland. The landowner sued that that was a taking. Now, the Constitution's Fifth Amendment says that government can't take your property without just compensation. Now, there are lots of legal issues in this case, and my legal degree is getting staler by the second. But the key takeaway I got from this is that the court's ruling is that an alleged taking by a local or state government can be challenged in the federal court skipping a state court system, even though the landowner who feels you know, affected by this has not exhausted her constitutional rights to seek just compensation. Now, how does this relate to the coast? Since getting public access for beach nourishment uh, projects is often a contentious issue about public access, and sometimes the, the need to condemn property to provide public access, also, the placement of sand involves public access, which therefore involves, in essence, what some people view as a, a taking that should deserve uh, uh, compensation. So I wonder if this high court decision about how those battles are now handled in federal courts will just mean that everything moves from states to federal courts. A lot of you folks who are listening, Panhandle, Florida, think about that. Speaking of contentious issues, the fact-based Congressional Research Service put out a brief report uh, that said that the amount of federal funding for navigation dredging was 22% higher in the five-year period from 2013 to 2017 than from uh, 2001 to 2005. Now, that alone is not going to elicit any argument, but here comes a surprise. The actual amount of sand that was dredged dropped 15%. 
Now, the Dredging Contractors of America has disputed the accuracy of the figures. But here's something we really need to face. The federal government is spending more on and more on coastal water resources post-disaster than pre-disaster. With storms and their severity increasing, the need to dredge sand is actually on the rise, but it's going to continue to increase. That's how I'm putting down my money. Now, in our economic system, the higher the demand for a service, the more that service is going to cost. There are similar federal ports and channels, there's rather smaller federal ports and channels that are not getting dredged as often or even at all because Uncle Sam just doesn't have the money to do it. The same goes for beaches that need to be nursed. If some beaches weren't hit by disasters, they would not be getting nursed. Yeah, the, the price per cubic yard uh, that we've been seeing has skyrocketed. Just I up mean, to high, really high levels. We're seeing, I know one of the conferences that, that we went to, we were talking about going offshore for sand that was 16, 17, even up to $20. 20, a cubic yard. $22, I wouldn't be surprised, would be cost that would be. You know, some projects are facing. And I remember seeing the average being around six to seven for cubic yard. I know that's for uh, for dredging ports and harbors, but you know, for beach yeah. nourishment, that's an incredible cost. Because you have to different equipment and go offshore. Well, the fact is, I think it's time to open up our dredging market so that the free market competition uh, that our system provides, our, our economic system, can put the brakes on dredging costs. So that's limited by the Jones Act. Yes, it is, and uh, the will of Congress also to allow the Corps to put its uh, admittedly outdated but nevertheless serviceable hopper dredge into action if they have to revamp it, small amount of money for a large amount of profit. But every year there's a provision in the Energy and Water Appropriations Bill that prohibits the Corps from spending any money to keep that dredge updated and get it back into service. One dredge would make a difference. We'll let that be for now. <laughs> Next time you tune in, uh, we'll probably be mid-July, and we hope to have the Senate putting together its version of some appropriation bills. Um, that's it for today, folks. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to write to us. Uh, you can research, reach us on waterlog.net, coastalstrategies.net, warwickgroupconsultants.net, and of course LinkedIn. Uh, both me and Howard are on there. Uh, you can also do Twitter. I don't do Twitter. No, Dan doesn't tweet. I do. Uh, but if you're not subscribed to Waterlog, just head on over to waterlog.net. Until next time. Bye.